Romans chapter 3, and verse 25, we're going to look at this morning. We've been, in the last few studies of the book of Romans, we have looked at several different facets of the salvation that has been purchased for us by Jesus Christ. And we looked at it looking at terms like propitiation and redemption and justification and showing the application of those to saving faith. Now I want to go back and look at those again through the lens of one phrase that occurs in verse 25 of chapter 3. It is the phrase, by his blood. And we find it there in 325, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That, that is a key idea in salvation, and yet one of the most opposed ideas uh, in the Christian faith. Uh, the first week uh, after I surrendered to preach uh, in May 1974, uh, I went to a family reunion. Uh, my mother's side of the family, and, and there was an old country preacher there who had been preaching for years and years, and they told him that I surrendered to preach, so he talked to me a little bit, and he said this to me. He said, son, I've been preaching the gospel for 50 years. I want to give you a little bit of advice. He said, when you preach, preach hell hot, heaven sweet, you must be born again. And nothing but the blood of Jesus. Uh, I've not gotten much better advice. That's good advice for anyone. And yet, what he said, many learned scholars would deem abhorrent. I read this week a, a, a paper on the atonement by a man who's a prominent British scholar, a PhD, uh, and not only does he not like the doctrine of a blood atonement, he doesn't like atonement. He says, and I quote, I renounce the doctrine of atonement as a heresy, giving a false image of God and leading people to see God as a major child abuser who seems to be saying, I cannot forgive your sins unless you kill my son. This whole article is about really how smart he is. He, he begins by talking about most of the people in the pews today just take what the pastor says without questioning it. I thought, you've never been a pastor. You don't have a clue what's going on to start with. But then he says, I have learned to be a free thinker. I've learned to go beyond that. Watch out. When anybody says that, many times you're going to find a fellow who has been educated beyond his intelligence. So he goes on to say things like he believes that Jesus was divine but not God. What does that even mean? I mean, excuse me, but what does that even mean? Jesus is divine, but he's not God. I, maybe y'all look the word divine up. But anyway, his major bone of contention is with the idea that God demands a sacrifice. So he says that all of the Old Testament was a picture uh, of a God who was cruel and harsh and capricious 
And he demanded these sacrifices of lambs and bulls and goats. But now, apparently, God has grown. He's evolved. He's got more loving, more compassionate. And he ends up by saying that Jesus died as an example of a man who stays by his friends. And I'm thinking, and that does us what kind of good exactly? I want to show to you, I think I want to, I hope I can show you from the Bible, from the Bible. Now, this, this man's theories had nothing to do with the Bible. He could not have proven them from the Bible, you know, if you'd given him, you know, a Bible, a flashlight, and a thousand years. But from the Bible, I want to show you that he is wrong. That those who think that the idea of the blood of Jesus is somehow repulsive and that we should not be singing songs like Lowry's Nothing But the Blood or Cowper's There is a Fountain Filled with Blood because that is a slaughterhouse religion. And many mainline denominations took those hymns out of their hymnals 40 years ago or longer. But I want to tell you that the idea of the shedding of blood is essential to your salvation. It is essential to what Christ has done in order to provide for us the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. There's also a view that I want to touch on just briefly, and that's kind of come along in the last few years with the church growth movement, people who are kind of ashamed of the idea of, of blood being shed, and they say, well, it is the life of Jesus that is most important. It is the fact that he lived his life, and that life was released through death, and thus made available to us. These people are generally ones again. They're ashamed of the idea that God is a God of wrath. God cannot be a God of wrath. If he is not a God of wrath, of course, he's not a God of justice either, or of holiness. So you've basically done away with the idea of God, but they want to tone down the concept of the wrath of God by talking about the life of Christ being signified in the message of the blood. Uh, the problem with that whole way of thinking is, is that the blood is never mentioned except in connection with the shedding of it or after it has already been shed. The blood shed is the life poured out and the life poured out is used for atonement. The blood makes an atonement for the soul. It was, if, if only giving his life was what Jesus was doing, not experiencing the wrath of God on the cross, then why did he so dread the cross? Other men have faced death courageously. Surely Jesus could have done the same thing. Why did he sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane. Why was he in such agony? Obviously, it was because of why the Bible says, because he was going to become sin for those who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was going to experience the wrath of God poured out upon him, separated from God for a moment of time. It was not death 
that so much filled his soul with dread as it was the prospect of enduring the wrath of God and becoming sin. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And the important thing is to remember that the shedding of Christ's blood has to do with Christ's death. And the death of Christ in Scripture is always and everywhere set forth as being substitutionary. We talk about the vicarious death of Christ. A vicar is someone who represents someone else. So vicarious means in the place of. Jesus died for our sins. He died in our place. Sin demands death. We're going to look in, in a few chapters in, in Romans that, and see that the wages of sin is death. God's holiness demands the death of the person that sins. And there must be some way to provide satisfaction for God's holiness, to appease and propitiate his wrath. Propitiation is a key doctrine associated with the shedding of blood. It, it means the turning aside of the wrath of God. But how is that accomplished? God's wrath is against sin, and God's justice demands the death of sinners. The soul that sins must die. And if the sinner is to escape the fierce wrath of God, the judgment of God must either be poured out upon the sinner or upon an acceptable substitute. The only acceptable substitute is Jesus Christ. An innocent must die in the place of the guilty. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul means when he says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. It is the blood that provides that turning aside of the wrath of God. We studied propitiation. I said it is tied to the uh, mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. Propitiation was made in Israel when the high priest spread the blood of a slain animal between the symbolic presence of God above the mercy seat and the law of God that was in the ark below. The blood testified to the substitutionary death of the victim. That's what the writer of Hebrews has in mind when he writes in chapter 9 these words. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, comes by 
the blood, by the shedding of blood. The idea of blood and a reference, obviously, to the death and substitution principle is also present in the doctrine of redemption. Redemption has to do with purchasing the sinner from sin slavery so that they do not return to that marketplace. How is that accomplished? Sinners have no resources to purchase their own redemption. All sinners are bankrupt. Not so with the Lord. The Lord is infinitely rich, so he substitutes for us. He purchases our redemption by his own death or by his blood. Here are some pertinent texts. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Acts 20, verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. If God changed the plan from the Old Testament to the New and no longer required a substitute and no longer required the shedding of blood, he neglected to tell his apostles who wrote the New Testament. They are abundantly clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Justification, we looked at that, a legal term, noting the act by which a judge declares a defendant to be in a right standing before the prevailing law. Here, in the court of salvation, the judge is God. We are the defendants. We want to be declared right before God's holy law. Yet we're not right. We are violators of God's law. Consistently violators of God's law. How can we be justified? How can we be declared right when we are not right? Obviously, only if another makes things right, which is what Jesus Christ has done for us in his death. That's, that's why two chapters on in the book of Romans, Paul will write this. We have now been justified, how? By his blood. It is by the substitutionary death and propitiation achieved by it that we are justified, that God declares us to be righteous. Propitiation, redemption, justification, reconciliation, all of these proclaim the necessity of a substitute dying. All of these images related to salvation, what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in salvation. Teach that God's saving work was achieved through the shedding of blood. That is, through the substitutionary sacrifice 
of Jesus Christ. Since Christ's blood as a symbol of his life laid down in violent death, it is plain that in each of these four images, to achieve this for us, he died in our place. He died as our substitute. The death of Jesus was the atoning sacrifice because of which God averts his wrath from us. The ransom price by which we have been redeemed. The condemnation of the innocent that the guilty might be declared righteous, that we might be justified. And the sinless one made sin for us. The shedding of blood speaks of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Everywhere in the Bible that it talks about salvation, it speaks of this, directly or indirectly. That Christ died for our sins. He died in our place. He made propitiation Redemption, justification, reconciliation necessary by shedding his own blood unto death. A violent death. I think part of the problem with modern scoffers, uh, I'm sorry, scholars, is that they are so far removed uh, from uh, the messiness of life and death that they, they just can't grasp it. Uh, I, I saw a, a, a newspaper article in the Los Angeles Times a few months ago, and a young woman, educated young woman, was talking about uh, how repugnant it was that farmers were killing animals for food. Now, she's college educated, and she said this, and I'm not lying. I don't understand why they would kill a little calf for food. Why don't they go to the grocery store and buy steaks like everybody else? Okay. <clears throat> but we, you know, we, we live far removed from the food chain and blood today, whereas our ancestors did not. I, I can remember, and I'm obviously a pretty young fella, but I can remember my grandmother, my great-grandmother, killing a chicken on Sunday morning. I mean... Ringing his neck. My, my great-grandma, she could wring that neck off that chicken. Chicken run around. You heard the expression, run around like a chicken with his head cut off? They really do that. But she would pluck the feathers, you know, the blood would be everywhere, and then she cooked it, and you sit down and ate it. You knew that that food was provided for you by the death of that chicken. You know, there was no doubting it. But today... These ideas of blood and life and death are kind of far removed from us. If you went back into the Old Testament, those people had no, had no problem with the idea of a substitute and with the shedding of blood. There is, there is literally rivers of blood that run through the Old Testament as God is teaching uh, a lesson about what is to come, about the price that will have to be paid for sinners to be justified, propitiated, reconciled, and redeemed. If you go back to near the beginning of the Bible, 
Genesis 22, there is a story there about Abraham's near sacrifice of his son Isaac. And all of you remember the story. They're on their way uh, to Mount Moriah where a couple of thousand years later Christ will die. And Isaac is carrying the wood for the sacrifice. And his father has the knife and the fire. But Isaac noticed something very important. There is no animal for the sacrifice. And so he asked his father, Father, yes, my son, answered Abraham, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. I refer to that exchange because the question asked by Isaac was the most profound question that anyone could have asked during the Old Testament period. Indeed, it must have been the chief question of the Old Testament saints. In the same way, during this same period, the answer of Abraham was the most profound answer that anyone could have given. Think about it for a moment. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, eating from the tree that God had told them not to, God came to them not to judge them with immediate physical death, but to show them the way of salvation. The Bible says that he killed two animals. I think they were lambs. Convince me otherwise. But anyway, he skinned them and he clothed Adam and Eve with those fresh skins. He made a covering. He made the same word for atonement is for covering. And Adam, who at this point immediately removed from the fall, undoubtedly had great spiritual perception, must have thought that the fact that the animals died showed that sin does bring death, just as God had said. For the wages of sin is death. But it also demonstrated that it is possible for a substitute to die in the place of a sinner. Moreover, God had promised a deliverer when he had pronounced judgment on the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall <clears throat> bruise his heel. Combining those two revelations, I think Abraham probably thought to himself, I understand what God is teaching here. The principle of substitution is clear. The death of one for another. But also understand that that can only be a type or a symbol of what is coming. Because a lamb is not the equivalent of a human being. The death of a lamb does not atone for the sin of rational men and women. If genuine salvation is to be achieved... An actual deliverer must come. But when? When will he come? And Adam could have asked the question of Isaac. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham was not present on that occasion, of course. But if he had been, he could have answered as he did Isaac. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. I don't know when God will do it, but he's promised it. And he will do it. Come on ahead to Moses. Moses is sent to deliver the children of Israel. And 
ten plagues come upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. You remember the tenth one is the firstborn in the land died. The death angel came through the land and the firstborn of every household died. The only exception was when the blood of a lamb was put over the doorpost and the lentil and the death angel passed over them. Moses must have understood these symbols just as Adam did, but he also must have seen that a lamb is not the equivalent of a human being. Animals are killed in our place, but surely the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Moses understood that the animals pointed ahead to something better, something that takes away sin forever. He might have asked the question, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And again, Abraham would have answered, God himself will provide the lamb. Come to David. David could have asked Isaac's question. He understood the principle of substitution. When he sinned with regard to Bathsheba, committing adultery with her and having her husband murdered, he confessed his sin. And he wrote that confession out in what we have as the 51st Psalm. And he put this down in verse 7 of that Psalm. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was the plant used by the priest to dip in the blood of the sacrifice to sprinkle the blood. So when David said, cleanse me with hyssop, he was pleading salvation by the blood of the sacrifice. Still, he could have questioned its relevance. He could have said, I recognize that God has appointed the sacrifice as a way of cleansing. But an animal cannot take away sin. It points to something greater. Where is the greater sacrifice? And he could have asked Isaac's question. Where is the lamb for the blood offering? And Abraham could have answered David, God himself will provide the lamb in his own time. Isaiah could have asked the same question. There's more about substitutionary atonement in the book of Isaiah than probably anywhere in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 the prophet says, surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. and By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, of course, is talking about Messiah, the Christ, the one who will come, who will be the substitute. And still Isaiah might have asked the question, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Go through the books of the Bible. Jeremiah, Hosea, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Malachi, all of the prophets, all of them could ask this question. We come to the New Testament times, the birth of Jesus, and there are devout believers like Simeon and Anna who are in the temple. They are looking, they say, Luke chapter 2, for the redemption of Jerusalem. And at last there came a day 
recorded in the fourth gospel when a man by the name of John the Baptist is baptizing near the Jordan River. And a relative of his, a man from up north named Jesus, walked by. And John, prompted by the Holy Spirit, pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where is the Lamb for the burnt offering? Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God Himself, God Himself has provided the Lamb for the offering. Jesus Christ came to earth to die. He came to die in the place of sinners. And after living a perfect life, after keeping the law of God in every respect, after loving God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength, every day of his, of his existence, he went to a cross and died. He shed his blood for our sins. He did it at the ex exact precise moment that all of the Passover lambs were being killed in Jerusalem. And he became the sacrifice that is made once for all. The world doesn't much like the idea of the blood of Jesus, and that is not surprising. For the blood represents that for which they have the most extreme aversion. Salvation from someone else. Salvation that they have nothing to do with. That, that God provides as a gift if you will receive it. Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, and that by receiving him, you receive forgiveness and redemption, propitiation, the benefits of propitiation, justification, reconciliation. We cannot save ourselves. If we are to be saved, it is only by faith in the sacrifice. If you ask the question, what can wash away my sin? The answer is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together.